Welcome to the Product Pod, the podcast that explores product from every possible angle. I'm Ram Almog, and here with me is Arit Deituni. Today, we are chatting with John Cutler, a renowned product evangelist and coach at Amplitude. John has been writing and giving talks about product for years, and among the many subjects he covers is what he terms as the messy middle or the beautiful mess. I've seen him use both terms. This is exactly what we'll focus on in this session, so let's dive into the mess. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. As I said before, John Cutler is here, so just like everyone, like, go like that or clap your hands or... <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. And um, for those of you who don't know him, um, he's a product evangelist. He works at Amplitude. And from what I understand, John, what you do at Amplitude is you're a product evangelist, but you also coach customers and you've also coached many people in the past. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a really interesting role in the sense that maybe I spend 20 or 30% of my time you know, speaking specifically about the product. Um, but what we realized as a company is that you know, the, the product is part of a bigger problem and question and opportunity, right? So, you know, on an average day, I might meet with a CPO and do some coaching or give them some, you know, feedback, maybe do an AMA with a team. Certainly at 5 a.m. this morning, I had an AMA with a team. So I rolled out of bed and got my coffee and did that. And then, um, so what we're, what we've realized is you sort of have to think about the broader environment. And then when that falls in place, I love our product, but it's sort of a natural extension when you get some other things working, then it, it becomes a really important part of that. So it's a good, um, yeah, I believe in our product, but I don't spend a lot of my day talking about it, interestingly, which is sort of an interesting uh, job for sure. So um, you write a lot about um, a lot of topics and, and one of the, um, lately you've been writing about what you call the, the messy middle. Okay, yeah. or uh, the beautiful mess. I've seen that. I've seen you phrase that both <laughs> ways, um, which is really interesting. And and before we get to the beautiful mess, um, I just want to say that you were a musician for many years. Okay, and we talked about music, and I we have some know, other musicians like, <laughs> on the intro. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I want to I want to hear a little bit about um, your experience with music and 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 how. Is how how that made you get to the this concept of the messy middle? Did it have anything to do with it, or um, embracing chaos and stuff? So, so please talk about. Yeah, that there's a, a couple, <laughs> a couple things come to mind. I think actually there's probably a ton of musicians on the call too. Maybe hit the chat and what you play. Yeah, so it'd be hit really the chat. funny. This is a pretty <laughs> common thing. It seems like in the product community among folks. Yeah, we have a great. We could have an orchestra. We have 241 people. It'd be amazing. Um, no, I, I think that uh, anyone who's been involved in playing music sort of sees it as a creative activity and also something that involves multiple people. You're, you're kind of, if you've recorded a record, you know how painful that can be. <laughs> you know, it can take months or even years to do that. Uh, there's personalities like a lead singer I played with cared so much about his voice that he had one of those sort of mafioso vibrating things on his, you know, when you have a tracheotomy, you know, put something on your throat, like, you know, he would talk like a robot, which is really annoying. Um, so you have a lot of funny personalities to deal with. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to work it out, you know? So if you're in a, we, most of the time we were not the headlining act. We were in the van, the 16 passenger van with six people in it, sort of staying in $15 motels, right? So we were following the tour bus of whichever band it was. And so you have to kind of learn how to embrace people's differences and get it done, <laughs> you know, and show up when you do it. So I don't know if the, there's exact comparisons, but I've always seen product as sort of a creative activity with a bunch of people who are very passionate about what they're doing, who care about it having an impact. And I, certainly there is like an engineering component. There's a sort of mathy, very analytical component, but there's also a creative component for the people involved. And that's what I've always gravitated towards. So yeah, I don't know if, um, and, and there is just a type, like we were joking about it before, there's almost like the band camp crew you know, the people who are just really dorky about music. And, and for some reason, there's these overlaps between these communities with my 
I'll always be surprised when someone says, oh, actually, you know, I played in an orchestra, you know, something. So there's overlaps with our community uh, to do it. But yeah, it's, it is influencing the beautiful mess too that, you know, if you sit down to make a record and think you have a formula for making a record, you're going to be sorely disappointed about one hour into the activity uh, when you're doing it. So, yeah. so going into the, the messy middle, like, um, yeah. can you give us, a, um, when did you get to, when did you start writing about it? And what was it after you finished writing about other things and how did you get to Oh, oh that's fun. Okay. Yeah, I think that this has happened, you know, this stands out, you know, let's say at maybe last year I met with 130 or 140 teams. And so when you meet with a lot of teams, you start to see this pattern. And I think that it just became more and more apparent that there was this lack of understanding and connective tissue. And I actually have some visuals that I could share with, you know, I think a visual would help to explain what I mean. But we, we can manifest the messy middle in a couple of different ways. So for example, you know, if we think about all the work you're doing as sort of a set of planets, right? And there's the one to three hour work, you know, like you're showing up at this call, that's a bet you're making right now, right? All the way up to one to three decades. So imagine that all these types of bets are interacting at the same time with each other. And so what you notice is that, you know, people come to work. So we typically, well, we know our calendar's there. So we, we kind of know what we're going to do. And you often have, you know, people would almost mutiny the company if they didn't really know what they were going to do at all in the next couple of days. That would be a lot of uncertainty. And certainly in the one to three week range, you know, people generally have an idea. But there is this zone between the kind of, we have our strategy for 2022. It is these four bullets and these five slides. Does everyone agree? And everyone sort of nods their head and says, yeah, sort of, tell me something I didn't know. You know, it's not very opinionated. It's very high level. And then what even, you know, all this work down here. So you, you kind of have this problem right here, which is this messy middle of work. And it even goes beyond maybe people talk about opportunity problems and solutions. It's, it's pretty easy to define problems here. You know, we're not even talking about problems and solutions. It's more this connective tissue about making the strategy actionable. You know, so people come to work inspired month after month, quarter after quarter to do it. And so another way to think about it as well is if we think about, um, I'll only go, I could talk forever about this. I'll just give you some examples to go off of. Um, like this is another way to think about it is that, you know, we have, you know, often someone has thought of the business strategy and someone has a high level product strategy in mind, you know, oh, we're going to do that. You know, we're going to, ideally it's not a plan. It's an actual sort of strategy. And even now, a lot of teams are thinking about opportunities or problems, you know, give, give the team problems to solve, not solutions. Well, anyone who's done product know that every problem is a solution to a higher level problem. <laughs> it's very easy to frame a problem in a pretty darn prescriptive way. So again, to explain the messy middle another way, it's like, you know, people come to work, these sort of one to three weeks, one to three months, they kind of know what they're doing. And then these one to three year strategies and the business strategy is there. So that's another way to view this messy middle problem is this idea of this connective tissue. So I'll pause in a second, you know, maybe folks have questions or other things, but what you start to see when you meet with tons of teams doing modern product is that this is, this is a challenge for so many teams, you know, defining things not as work, but defining things in a way that would allow people, you know, any, any developer working down here should be able to tie what they're doing to, to the bets that matter up here in a coherent way without sort of making it up as you go along. So, so I'll John, pause to you, see if there's, yeah. yeah can you give ahead. like a concrete example of that, you know, so that sure. people, yeah, can, let's do it. you know, cause I think I'm not sure that everyone, um, yeah. I love that. Like, uh, yeah, let's okay. go. I've, so, I've got lots of these. Let's go to some concrete examples. <laughs> um, okay, so to give you an example, what I mean by the messy middle is that, so this is an automation product and it's in the construction industry and this automation product automates tasks involved with construction project management. And so you can see what I mean by, so let's think about the messy middle, you know, up here somewhere they have a product strategy right? 
And right down here, someone is going to come to work and is working on the My Tasks feature or is working on, you know, sending emails or sending something like that or, oh, you know, mobile. Mobile is a priority for the next <laughs> six months. It's like mobile, what? M mobile, what are you talking about, right? And solving the mobile problem. <laughs> solving the mobile problem. It's it, probably mobile personalization, onboarding. Uh, there's a probably 10 words that we all love to hate, you know, to do these things. So this is an example of where, you know, this model here, this persistent model represented by this kind of North Star is one way to solve this problem. But this sort of model here is something that's going to be around for a year, a couple of years. You know, it's not going anywhere any very quickly. And so if you do something like, you know, Teresa Torres has this opportunity solution tree, often that still is kind of working maybe just around here. You know, so it's kind of operating in this zone. So what I'm talking about very specifically is I'm, you know, I'm a developer working on the configuration experience. I should be able to know that that's going to contribute to less changes and less errors, which is going to contribute to template quality, which is going to increase instance quality, which is then going to improve accuracy and task completion, which is then going to contribute to healthy completed workflows, which is then going to contribute to the idea of healthy construction projects, which is then going to contribute to the idea of this long-term strategy of kind of usable construction project management, as an example. I don't know if that helped, but it's just a, yeah. and sometimes it gets way, way messier. We could go into this example later, but like, it's not always as clear. There's sometimes a lot of lines moving between things, but the, the same relative example, if you, your company, someone says, we've got to gamify it. Gamification is the strategy. It's like, but then, you know, the minute you mention, hey, we're going to give trophies and badges, the marketing team and you just debate for the next three months about what trophies to give. The trophies to give are rather, that is an implementation detail. <laughs> Why, you know, trophies are going to help gamify, which is going to add to motivation and rewards, which is going to help to the joy of collecting movies which is then going to help us increase the number of super collectors who buy movies and do stuff. And then it gets messy because it also means collection would be a social activity, which helps people buy more and purchase more, et cetera. So it's often not as clear cut, but this is you know, some real world examples of what I'm talking about. So that messy middle, you know, the connective tissue between time-oriented goals, the work, goals. By the end of this quarter, we're going to achieve this outcome or we're going to ship this thing. That's time-oriented, goal-oriented work. The differentiation between that and the persistent model, our mental models about how value can be created for our product, those two worlds need a connective tissue. They, they need something that allows you to, 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 you really want teams to come to work and for the next 12 to 18 months, be obsessed with a problem, you know, obsessed with driving something. And to get that, you need the connective tissue. So hopefully that helped with some examples about what, I, I, what I'm talking about. Like the, 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 so there's a mess from the product perspective, team perspective, <laughs> that, that where are we going? Are we showing progress? And then there is a mess from, from leadership about yeah. are we making progress? Are we because we may fail on the, on like experiments over and over again, but we still. So, so when you're talking about the mess, are you talking about both ways, or are you talking? Wait, Jan, can you share the screen again? Because people want to see the the, the, oh, the yeah. maps again. Okay, they like the maps. maps. We're gonna go to some <laughs> maps. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. You know, here's part of the mess. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. To to be realistic, though, well, let me just say one thing before I answer Ram's question. Very, very good question. Is that when I mean model, it could be something as simple as we acquire users, we activate them, some churn, some resurrect, some... Re I, I'm just talking about some model to ground the team. Or if you think about in B2B, uh, you know, a flywheel model. So in B2B is largely... A, so in this particular company, they help you get set up. Then there's a free trial personal use loop that creates an activation loop, which then kind of crosses over to, to a cross-department expansion loop which then is a monetization loop. So I don't think that these only need to be trees. You know, that this just, when I mean model, I mean some persistent model that helps people wrap their head around the business. So then back to, to uh, Ram's question, which I think is great is, um, you know, let, let me go to an example 
here. So the question is, is this a top-down, bottom-up activity? So let me, um, let me think about the best way to answer this. Okay, I have a model to help with this particular question. So imagine a model that I call this mandate levels and will help address Ram's question. So imagine that we have, you know, people always say problem versus solution. And imagining that it's this dichotomy of problems and solutions, no product work is like that. <laughs> it's a little bit more complex. So I'm basically the mess guy. So when you say three things, I'm the annoying person on your team that will be like, but or it's not just three things. It's more like eight or 10 things, right? If that's one lesson from today, say, yes, you need the slide with three things, but someone on your team wants 10 things. That's me, basically. So you think about this model, like thinks about work. To, from A is build exactly this to a predetermined specification, very specific. B, build something that does this to specific, that does a specific behavior. So build exactly this is, here's a spec, three pixel radius, you're gonna build exactly this. Build something that does this will be like, you need to do something that takes this input and produces this output or, in, or allows this interaction. C, build something that lets a segment of customers complete this. D, solve a more open-ended problem. E explore the challenges of or experiences for maybe a segment of customers on down the line. You can read them yourself um, to do it. Now, when I heard Ram's question, what I did imagine is that you get this motion, right? Where in some companies, product teams are down here. Some product manager has a strict role boundary that sits here. Another team has a strict role boundary that sits here. And then someone is thinking about this. And in other organizations, it's much, much, much more fluid, right? You have product teams and product managers that are, when I say mess, you know, it's much more overlap. And you might have a GM that sits right here and then are thinking about a long-term business outcome. So the trick is it is absolutely a bottom-up, top-down kind of sandwich of things because when it comes to... And, and this is why the maps are really, really important and why it's helpful to keep reiterating these types of maps in any meeting you have, right? Because um, an example is there's a very, very large HR tooling company. And you talk to the, even the line product managers and they will say, oh, I'm getting such unclear direction from leadership. I don't know what's important. You do these things. And then you talk to the leader of the company and the leader of the company is like, there's no uncertainty for me. We're taking spot solutions. We're going to turn a platform. We've been we've received three hundred million dollars of investment to build a platform on spot solutions. And the hypothesis is we're going to create a flywheel. We're going to extend in across the HR organization to more of their tools. There's no question for me. This the founder of the company says says this, this is a multi billion dollar valuation company, right? And then meanwhile, the people on the teams are saying, we're getting such unclear direction, we're doing that. This is why you do need to move in both directions, right? Because both of them are right. At a macro level, the CEO is absolutely right. There's a lot of implementation details, but at the end of the day, if this company can progressively move its footprint across the organization and capture more of the tools and processes for HR, there is a 10x opportunity in spend across the company. And that is a very valid strategy. And it is absolutely correct that the teams are not getting direction about what that means for them, <laughs> right? And so to go from you know, Ram's example, you know, we could apply that in this flywheel that you know, the CEO is basically saying, more of everything, everyone. You know, I just got $100 million because more of everything and the investors believe in us. And they're right. The CEO is right. <laughs> but the fact is, is that naming it to tame it, kind of naming it that we have a monetization and integration loop, naming it with the idea that you might have teams focusing on this, or you might have teams focusing on this loop here, is the way to bring these groups together. I, I'm not sure I did a great job of answering that question, but hopefully at least the answer was interesting, where absolutely, yes, you need to work both directions. Absolutely, both people are right. And that's why you need to create, it, a product's job is to create coherence. The one thing I would say for product managers is if you don't share the coherence with the organization, your only job is basically translator. So if all you do is if you pride on your role being the translator, like, oh, I can take the weird businessy stuff and then convert that into problems to solve for the engineers and only I can do it, <laughs> 
then your only role in the organization is literally a translation box. And if you're spending 75% of your time being a translation box, you're not spending time with customers. You're not spending time thinking about product strategy. You're not time mentoring people on your team. You're not spending any time like that. So the reason when I say product's role is context, it's almost scaling. It's context as a service. A product manager is C-A-A-S. It's not translator as a service. And so maybe I would leave folks to think about what that might mean in your organization. I'd, I'd love I'd love you to focus more on that context thing. Okay. <laughs> I heard that I've heard it recently for, from from somebody, and I thought that was very powerful. Like, what does it mean to have context and to give context? Yeah, I love that. So, this goes into the question of uncertainty. Context is not about manufacturing certainty, and a lot of people believe that they think, well, context is certainty, and I don't believe it is. Like context is the map. It's shared understanding about the inputs and outputs and the landscape that we're working in. Having said that, though, I think that there's lots of situations where a team is so overwhelmed with the uncertainty inherent in the context that they get paralyzed and they don't move. And so I think that part of what I mean by sharing context, too, is it's about uh, the way that I describe it is, look, a PM's job is never done. Like you, 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 you specify the problem. They'll say, could you please give us some hints on the solution? You specify the solution. They say, damn you, you didn't give us the problem. You give the problem. They say, damn you, you didn't give us the strategy. You give them the strategy and you say, you haven't broken it down into problems. You know, so the job is never <laughs> done. So what, it, so context means a couple things. One is it means not just one context. It means context at the appropriate resolutions for the appropriate people that you're talking about. And it also, I think context means forming agreements about where you will create operating assumptions to move forward. And I think this is what happens. So it's a very big difference between manufacturing certainty as a PM and saying, I know the answer to this, go and go off and build this for next year. And saying, we shared context, we shared the map, we agreed there's some uncertainty there, but we're going to be paralyzed if we don't pin some of our assumptions to move forward. Our operating assumption is that X, Y, and Z will be true. And in six months, we'll revisit our assumptions and discuss whether they still hold true. So I think, you know, I went to a couple places with the answer there, but context is about shared language and shared understanding at multiple levels so people can have better conversations. That's why you're creating context. It also means, I think, at a certain point, not artificially sort of hiding things from the team, but almost coming to an agreement that you will never move forward unless you create some kind of simplification and set of operating assumptions. The danger is that people forget why they were doing it in the first place, right? So you start with the mess, you share the context, and then someone says, you better have a plan, Ram. So, so, so he's like, I've got the plan for the next year. And you execute on the plan, but no one can find their way back to the set of assumptions. I don't know if that helps, but that's like um, yeah, a long answer for that's what context is to me. Uh, for that. I think like where do like um, the guiding policies or where does that fit in? Because a lot of times like decision making, when you have to make a decision, um, you look at the context, you know, but then like, um, but then you've got like these guiding policies and you override some of them. And uh, (laughs) so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think how many of us have seen that kind of set of principles or policies and then no one ever looks at the document again. You know, and and I think that that's, um, so the first thing that comes to mind is we hire all these things to do a job for us. I think like, I I think I like Jared Spool's description of jobs to be done as a like a convenient gimmick, but I apply the gimmick to the processes we use all the time. So we have principles, we have guiding heuristics and many teams have those. And I always ask like, what job is that meant to do? And some people say, oh, it's meant to create complete alignment and commitment. You ask other companies, it's like, no, these are just decision heuristics. You know, they're they're just things. Here's here's a tip that I would give people around guiding principles. Is that at any given point in time in your company, there are things that you must agree on. There's things where it's actually beneficial for you to disagree about them. And then there's things that you agree about that you should disrupt and start disagreeing about. 
And there's things that you disagree about that you should start agreeing about. So the one thing that came to mind, I could have probably drawn the matrix so you can understand for what Ort's question is, is that I tend to think that people come up with principles, but are not really, they don't come up with anti-principles or they don't, they don't leave room to have disagreement about things. And so I think that one thing that comes to mind with that question is that a team can only keep so many things in its head in terms of the guiding principles. So you have to be extremely diligent about that. And I think you do benefit from disagreement about the principles as they're coming through too to do it. So I'll, I, I'm probably gone in the wrong direction with answering this question, but I think that you need to make the principles usable. And if you intend people to consider the principles every time they write a one pager or they do something, list them at the top of every template for your one pager. If you think that the principles are meant to do the job of like aligning people on the higher level mission, that's your job as a product leader to repeat them at every six week meeting. Let me go back and revisit the principles. If you think the principles are meant to guide good decision-making, when you do decision reviews every four weeks where you sit with product managers and you revisit past decisions as a group in a safe environment, go back to your list of principles and say, did this follow the list of principles? So I think it's like, I think that the, the long, the short answer is you need to integrate the principles into everyday work appropriate to the job that you hope to hire them to do. Um, okay. Yeah. They also a little be beneficial there, if you don't have so many principles. <laughs> right. What I, but I think that this is what happens is it's like, it's the same thing with like culture is what you do, not what you put on the deck, you know? So it's like the same thing with principles. And I think there's this thing too, that when a company is, afraid that the culture is slipping away from them or they're afraid that people are not acting with alignment, they solve the problem with more principles. Aha, the founder is worried that people are not considering our early customers. Okay, one more principle. Principle number seven, <laughs> consider our, you know, you must be customer first. So what they're doing is they're sort of solving the symptom. <laughs> not the problem, right? You're not going to solve that problem by adding one more bullet to the list of principles. Um, you'll probably solve that problem as a founder by demonstrating customer-centric behavior. <laughs> and then also thinking about the alignment and incentives that exist. You know, I've seen founders say something like that, but when you look with the guiding principles around prioritization, no one, <laughs> no one is prioritizing work related to the early customers. So yeah, there's an element of acting the principles I think that matters. Uh, I'd like to go back to the uh, to the context again and and talk about yeah. cross team collaborations and how like so as a product manager you have your own context, but then there's yeah. another product manager sitting next to you and he and she has her own set of context. So how yeah. do you coordinate that and you make sure your contexts are aligned? So here's the, here, I've been very much embracing this idea that we have a limited amount of cognitive capacity. Like there's a cognitive load principle. And if you're a UX person, you kind of know what I'm getting at, but we can only keep so much in working kind of active, intentional memory at one point. And so what you see in organizations is that once the teams are acting in out of alignment and they're not sharing context, often the immediate answer is we need much more alignment. We need, we need to hire human load balancers. We need to hire program managers. We need to, like, we need to, to load up more cognitive load on the situation <laughs> to do the thing. So the, the first thing that comes to mind with context for other teams is what is the minimal amount of context you need to hold in active memory about what other people are doing to guide the decisions that you need to make for your particular team? And you'll notice this too. You probably have people at your company that say, um, oh my goodness, no one knows what anyone's doing. Uh, we'll now have a huge meeting where everyone discusses what they're doing. And like, you notice the meeting attendance goes down and down and down and down for that. Or everyone, I'm going to write the wrap up um, everything. So let me give a, actually a tip here that I learned actually at a company with a real world experiment that worked with this is I noticed that the teams were, didn't know what other teams were doing. And the problem that we wanted to solve was that often there was someone with subject matter expertise over here who would have gladly gotten involved over there if they even knew that it was a problem. Like they had written the code <laughs> that the other team was having struggling with. 
So we started out with the principle is like, what is the least amount of context people need? What's the minimal signal that you could get involved with another team? And so we wrote this thing called From the Front Lines and actually product hated it at first. They said, it's our job to communicate context. And I said, no, we're gonna, I will have an, a correspondent on each team. And the goal is do not spend more than five minutes writing something. And the whole one pager should not take more than eight minutes to read. And we started this experiment with just share three or four context setting bullets about what your team is up to. And we made, I PDF'd it. And back in the office, I would put it in the restrooms. Like I just started putting it around the company. And so one day, it's crazy. The CTO comes and says to me, John, I've never had a better impression of what the whole company is working on than that thing. I'm obsessed with from the front lines. Why did you make it a PDF? And I said, because if I shared it in Slack, people wouldn't read it. It would just be in the thing. Why did you put it on the walls? Because it needed to be quick to read. Why do people willingly do this? I said, because I told them it wouldn't take more than five minutes to do. So I don't know if that example, I wrote a blog post, you can Google, um, you know, from the front lines, or I think it's FTFL, John Cutler Medium, and I explain a case study, someone could put the link if they find it um, to do it. So hopefully that, I don't know if that exploration helped people think about it, but what's the minimal amount of context they need? Because frankly, what I see in a lot of organizations, especially in the pandemic, is that product managers are literally experiencing cognitive decline. They're trying to keep so much context in working memory across the organization, up, down, across, whatever, that they're not remembering things. They're not showing up at meetings 100%. They're not, they're not in the flow or in the moment because they're trying to hold so much context in their head and they're not doing their job well. So as leaders, anyone on the call, you need to think about this, that a lot of your job is actually managing the cognitive overload of the people on your teams. Um, so I'll leave folks thinking about that maybe. Makes me remote. That would be very, that would be really worth trying. Did, did you put a link to that um, article? Um, I can try to find, I can Google it. Like okay. There. I, uh, okay. From we all can use lines. a good garbage collector in our minds, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I'll paste the link here for folks to see. I mean, it's a fun case study. I really liked it. That's uh, good. I pasted the link in the chat. So um, I just want to ask the audience. Um, I, I really want to get some audience questions in. So does anyone have any questions about their messy middle and uh, <laughs> things that they have to deal with every day that they want to bring up and ask John? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a there's a question about product strategy, okay, which is uh, not the messy middle, but it should be a sort of a guiding thing for the messy middle. Um, sometimes I feel I can't my my eyesight's bad. Hold on a second. Sometimes I feel like uh, Ram, can you read this? I'm not sure what you're reading. <laughs> too much. You read sometimes I feel like I take on too much ownership over our product success, at what point should that fall on leadership versus product? Your what? You asked me to unmute. Sorry, there we go. Unmute. Okay, okay. <laughs> I needed to unmute the things. I love that I question. Like, I love your views on product strategy, sometimes I feel like I've taken on too much ownership over the product success. At what point should that fall on leadership versus product? Yeah. Oh, what a great question. Um, this is to me is about ownerships of bets at certain resolutions. I can completely relate to this question, right? Where let's say that you as a product leader like this goes back to this idea of operating assumptions. Let's say that the bet, go back to that example of the major HR you know, tooling provider. And let's say as a product leader, you're, you're literally making this bet that you know, we do not need to worry about the platform strategy. It will take care of itself. We need to drive individual SKUs and that we'll run a multi-product strategy until we have to then go back. We had this a little bit at Zendesk. You know, we ran multi-product, then you have to fold it back in and you have to create a kind of one strategy. It's a common example. Now think about what that means. Every team then is having to have these conversations with designers and designers are saying, we need a more holistic experience. I thought we we're supposed to do platform stuff. 
And then you as a product leader are having to take on, you know, when I mentioned it's what Arena said was great. Like, I feel like I take too much ownership over our product success. And what I'm hearing there is you're sort of internalizing the, the um, dichotomies that are evident in the strategy. And then you're having to handle that cognitive load with your team all the time of sort of explaining kind of this tension that exists. And so I 100% agree with uh, Irene in the sense that that is the product. What you really need to do is talk to your the, the leader of that particular product area or the leadership in there and say, you know, I need you to take a more forceful and public line on our product strategy, which will then free me up to do the work that I need to do to move the levers that you've asked me to move. So I, I, I guess my view on it is almost, um, it falls on leadership to frame the tensions that are evident in the company and then create the operating assumptions that allow your line product managers to do the best work that they do. I feel that Irene is basically is giving me an example of this cognitive load problem. She's saying basically that the lack of clarity from leadership about certain strategic things are shifting the cognitive load to me. And then I am having to shift the cognitive load to my team. And I need people to take more responsibility for us to do that. And so I, I don't have the specific answer, but I think that strategy what you notice in a lot of companies is there is not a product strategy. And what I mean by a product strategy is, um, I'll ask the company, so what's the strategy? And they'll say, you know, land and expand, or, you know, move up into the enterprise. It's like, what other of our competitors don't want to move into the enterprise? That is not opinionated. Like, what is the strategy here? <laughs> and it doesn't mean to say that sometimes you play games that don't have well-known strategies. And so just doing it better or faster than the other person won't be successful. But the strategic statements are like non-statements. And I actually think that what happens is that product leadership feels, oh my God, if I'm too specific or opinionated, people will think that I'm giving them solutions. And I would challenge people to say that your best product managers will respect opinionated strategies and people willing to focus. Because if you peanut butter a strategy, you're going to get a peanut butter product. And if you ship a peanut butter product, you're going to have to keep shipping a peanut butter product because you're going to go so broad that nothing will work. You know, So I think that the, the mistake is that people think, oh, outcomes over outputs. I need to empower my product managers. I need to do that. And they empower them with, with lack of clarity. They empower them by saying things like, you're empowered. I, I just want you to help that persona do that thing. And then meanwhile, the product manager is smart. They're like, you have not given me any, you have not made any decision whatsoever on whether that persona is going to be important in the next three years. And so I think that this is like the product leader. A lot of product leaders get the empowerment thing wrong. And they think it's about sort of lack of context. When I would argue it's actually more opinionated, more focused context will let product managers do their best work. Um, I don't know what other focus, folks think about that, but. Focus is yeah. the key, right? So it's like, um, that'll definitely uh, uh, solve a lot of the messy parts if you just, yeah. if, they, if they're able to the, just double down Another thing to on keep something. in mind is that you've got, <laughs> you've got different, um, the, the hardest part about product is you'll have a range of seniorities of product folks and the most experienced product people really want to get in your head and understand the game you're playing because they can make decisions based off of that. So one thing to think about strategy deployment is you can overwhelm more junior product managers by laying bare all the intricate kind of inner workings of the strategy because they will not be able to process it. It's unfair to them, right? It's unfair to take a junior PM and say, here's my 40 page strategy document, just so you understand everything. Um, you might want to walk through the document with them or something. Whereas your most passionate individual contributor product managers will be the ones tearing it apart, every assumption. And you need to, they, they will require more context to do the best work that they do. So it's something to think about as a product leader in terms of conveying um, strategic context to folks. And okay. uh, another question for Sergio Napit is how can we make, how can one make more sense of the messy middle and how can uh, one develop a better mental model? Oh, okay. I love this. So 
yeah, let me let me give an example. Let me give an example that sort of helped this along. Um, so this 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 one, I actually helped with this one. So this took about an hour with me asking questions, and I'm pretty fast at Miro, so I just I basically asked them the questions and made the model in real time in one hour. Um, this took this team a couple days because they needed to go kind of back and forth and they wanted it to be a little simpler, do these particular things. So the first thing that comes to mind is you have to set it. So you need to set aside the time and create the safety and create an environment where it's okay to be messy at first. Get every, and so basically what I did when I was facilitating for that team is anything anyone said, I made a sticky note for. So I would ask a question like, Two years from now, the company's gone down the tubes. Everyone's left. You've all been fired. What happened? And then someone will say like, oh, we failed to create a great content strategy so that investors could make good investment decisions. And I'll just write like investors, content, decisions. You know, I keep it very vague at first. So the best way, uh, Sergio, to think about this is uh, you need to create an environment where you can allow a certain level of divergence and kind of messy brainstorming. And then you need people around who can then kind of corral the model and put words to it uh, and then fine tune it. So there's no magic to it. Um, and so I think you just have to set aside the time to do the work. The other thing to think about it too is you want a diverse audience. You don't just want to do it with the CEO. Ideally, I always, this amazing example, I was doing this with a large South American neobank and every, you know, the CEO is like, this is the strategy and the product leader was the strategy. And then a, you know, 23 and a half year old UX researcher first job said, it appears as if the biggest assumption here is that we can replicate our success in Brazil in Mexico. We don't actually know the Mexican bankers yet, do we? <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, shit. <laughs> the, the, the fundamental part of our business here is that we can replicate this model that we had in one country across South America. And then we will become, now it's a much larger neobank, um, incredibly valuated company. But at that moment, it, you know, so you need a diverse audience, uh, Sergio, that helps because you get those little knowledge, like the fresh minds can give you the knowledge bombs um, that you need to kind of, I don't, sorry, I didn't mean to use the word bomb. I know it's like not a sensitive thing to talk about. Okay, and then, um, yeah, I would say one, um, I will give one link to folks. It's a post I wrote recently about inputs and loops. I'll actually, let me screen share this post while I'm working so people can see the techniques that I use. Um, I, I should probably write John Cutler because input and loops apparently is a very popular word. Um, so, uh, well, well, here you go. This is my sub stack. So you get to see how many views I have. Hold on, I'll find it. Um, okay, there we go. Leap loops and examples. One technique that I found Sargil to be really helpful is just using loops. Like our ability to blank is a function of our ability to blank. And usually you don't need to get people really into the mess. So you could start with some like our ability to succeed, you know, our ability to process transactions is a function of our ability and you give the team prompts like this, and you don't need, if they're very intimidated by a lot of Miro board stuff, don't worry about it. You can get prompts. And so I use other ones like when blank increases or decreases, we would expect to see blank. Like this is how we made this model, Frank. Well, this is an amplitude. Uh, we use this model. So like when we see investment in self-service analytics increase, we would expect to see greater access to data, greater access to analysis tools. So that's helpful. Um, so you can see that these prompts, you could probably see the URL to use this. A great beginner way to create loops and models is to start with these very clear prompts and then do the, the messy part as a second activity <laughs> to not intimidate people. Even this, like, um, you know, blank will help us blank, which will help us blank. A modern feel for the UX of the onboarding flow will help us successfully on, you know, so you can use different tools. Hopefully that was a helpful 
you know, answer, but you could start simple, diverse audience, allow the environment to be messy, get the right people in the room, including fresh minds. And then if it's too hard for people, start with really simple trees and then get messier over time as you start to work through it. Um, so uh, from Tony, uh, how does a printed uh, out PDF stuck on the walls translates to remote working? Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could ask people to buy a printer and print it out and put it, although I don't think your significant other would like it if there was like from the front lines, you know, in the door to your bathroom uh, to do the things. It would be kind of funny to think about. Um, I remote, back to the cognitive load problem, my serious fear is that the excess process that people are putting in place to handle the idea of remote alignment is again creating elements where people can't process anything. So the first thing you need to think about is with remote, you really need to die, you need to be extra careful about dialing in your cadences and artifacts and document. You, you know, especially during the pandemic, we've learned that's like. Everyone's over ambitious. You say, what new process are you doing this quarter? Like, oh, we're doing one pagers and we're doing this and then we're gonna do our strategy and then we're gonna do quarterly alignments and we're gonna do that. And meanwhile, people are already at 99%. Like they can barely process anything new and you're overwhelming this with a particular thing. And I think that this is just exacerbated with, with companies that are new to working remote and the companies that have always worked remote, you see how diligent they are about dialing it back the cognitive load to sort of get the desired effect to do it. So I think that remote for the, like the PDF example, honestly, yeah, I might keep it as a PDF, but then put it in Slack. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Um, I think also the idea that maybe I might incorporate it into a live ritual. You know, I might say something like, hey, we're just gonna pick one team at random from our normal doc, kind of put it there. Whatever you do though, like attach analytics and measurement to it, right? So. The, the poor person writing the weekly wrap-up email, probably everyone has at their company, like, oh, we're remote now, therefore we need to communicate better. Therefore, Shintaro from Product Ops is gonna write a three page long, uh, short version of everything that's happening in the org, but no one opens the email, you know, cause they, they're hit their max to do it. So I think my, my point would be either work it into synchronous activities or start in a very like, you need to add maybe some social component to it or maybe have a dedicated Slack channel, but then just that alone will not do it. You'd have to experiment. It's not easy. Um, I can say what kind of works for me, yeah, which absolutely. is um, uh, doing very, very short Loom videos. <laughs> and yeah, oh, oh, I've got Slack. And, and then again, I've I have four of those to watch. My <laughs> Loom inbox now has like five videos. Like I literally, after yeah. this call, I have to sit and watch Loom for the next 20 minutes. It's like and we've replaced one... <laughs> One thing with you, no, but Loom does help, um, obviously, to do that. And and actually, um, yeah, my my basic message is respect the cognitive load problem, and then also respect that your most passionate problem solvers probably have the greatest desire to get through the mess and capacity in healthy times to gravel with the mess. But if you notice your most passionate problem solvers seem like they can't get out of their own head in this overwhelmed environment, it's probably because it's almost like an athlete. Like when you're a really skilled athlete, you have the ability to push yourself into the pain zone that most people can't go, right? But if you're not healthy and you go into that zone, you can get injured. And I kind of feel this with some of the really the best PMs are really burning themselves out in this environment because they're not taking care of themselves uh, when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So um, we have here from Christopher Steinlerner, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so how to translate back if sea, I get this a lot. So how to translate back if sea level is mainly driven by simple KPIs, revenue, active users, et cetera. Well, at every company, you're gonna have a scorecard and due to the very nature of you can only fit so many things on a slide, it will almost by definition be overly simplistic, <laughs> right? So I think that, so the thing that I like to think about with that is when we do our North Star workshops, 
what I'm trying to get the product leader to do is to, to create a narrative around a product North Star that could maybe be one of the metrics of the six metrics scorecard for the company. And to say that the whole company, that's the only metric that they would be driving towards, that's not reasonable. But at Amplitude, for example, our CS team is very much driven by our North Star and the input that they can control. They, they have a lot of control over certain inputs into our North Star. Is it the only thing they worry about? No. Revenue expansion is obviously very important for the role of customer success. Customer health is doing that. So the first thing I would say is that vanity metrics are often just the best available thing that an executive could think about. It's not like a grand uh, conspiracy to put down the product people on the team, right? It's just, that's what they knew and it was the simplest thing that they could do it. So maybe as an initial step, if you could just get one of those vanity metrics and then try to swap it out with the count of people that are more representative of your strategy working, that would be a huge win for lots of organizations to do that. Um, and this also goes back to that thing of like, back to the mess. I mean, most companies will have a scorecard with six metrics in it, but if you kind of take each one of those metrics and you start making the map, <laughs> You've got another layer of 16 inputs, and then you, from those 16 inputs, you have another layer of 50 inputs. No one will process all that in their head, but in terms of locality, you know, every product pillar, for example, almost has their own little miniature North Star. And I wanted to, you know, I always return to this quote. Um, I think this relates to this question uh, somewhat indirectly, but I think it's important, is there is an amazing quote. It's from like a, an Amazon, investor letter, but basically it says, senior leaders that are new to Amazon are often surprised by how little time we spend discussing actual financial results. To be clear, we take these seriously, but we believe that focusing our energy on the controllable in inputs to our business is the most effective way to maximize outputs over time. Um, and I think they get this point here is that 360 of the 452 goals impacted customer experience. They only use the word revenue eight times and they never use the word net income, gross profit margin or operating profit in these particular things. Now we could say whatever we want about Amazon. There's certainly a lot of you know, detractors, there's whatever. But that idea of actionable inputs as something to advocate for. So if in your organization, you have that scorecard with daily actives and some revenues and things like that, the main point to bring up to leadership is like, that might help you, but it is not actionable for anyone on the team. And in fact, if anyone tried to directly action that metric, they could probably do more harm than they could do good to do it. And so that's usually a good argument to kind of create the cascading of KPIs that could be useful for your company. I don't know if that helped, but I think that that, that argument often works. Um, so we could take that for what it is. Well, I hope you enjoyed the mess as much as we did. And thank you, Jan, for all your tips. If you like what you heard, help these talks keep going by rating us on Spotify, iTunes, or just share this episode with a friend. Also, let us help you with your product challenges. We coach the best companies in the world. We'll help you build the right product and teach you how to build it faster and get your entire team aligned while you're at it. Contact us at www.red-id.com. Bye.